0: Father, we're so thankful for your great love for us in which you have drawn us to yourself. You've drawn us to your Son, Jesus Christ. And as we get closer and closer to Good Friday and Easter Sunday, I pray that we would each remember what it means that Jesus Christ is our Savior and Lord. And Lord, today as we open up your Word, as we look at Jesus, and even as people were asking, who is this? that you would give us the right understanding of who Jesus is and that we would humble ourselves before you to live rightly. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We've been going through a sermon series here at Cornerstone Church where we've been looking at Matthew chapters 1 through 7. So we we got to chapter 6 and now we're going to take a little break for Easter. We're going to take a little three week break so we can look at the events of Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday and then the, the aftermath. But, but don't fret, we're going to stay in the book of Matthew. So we're going to look at Palm Sunday today from Matthew 21. And then we'll do Good Friday and Easter things from Matthew chap- as well. And then we're going to end with uh, the Sunday after Easter, we're going to do the very last part <laughs> of the book of Matthew. Now, this is not my first time ever preaching a Palm Sunday sermon. In fact, this is my seventh time, and, and we pastors kind of try to figure out how do, we, how do we make it new, how do we make it fresh. It's the same old message, of course, but uh, uh, I, I'm going to do something a little bit different today. I'm going to start off with the traditional Palm Sunday passage. That's Matthew chapter 21, the first 11 verses, so I'm going to preach on that. But I'm going to continue and I'm actually going to look at the entire chapter of Matthew 21 today. And the reason that I'm going to do that is because it says in verse 10, when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? Now the word stirred is a very mild translation of that word. That word is the same word that can be used of an earthquake. So when Jesus came into Jerusalem and the people were shouting Hosanna, it wasn't just like he raised a few eyebrows. It was more like the whole city was shaken and was asking this question, who is this? And, and the events of Palm Sunday don't just stop right there. Jesus was on his way somewhere, and he caused this great stir throughout the city. So I want to look at the entire chapter today, and I want to look at what Jesus did to stir things up there. And really what I want to do is I want to take a look at how people responded and what Jesus told us how we should respond to him. So the the title of my sermon today is Two Responses and I think you'll see as I preach through this sermon that there are two very different responses that we could give to Jesus Christ and I want us to have the right one. So that's the goal of what we're going to do. I've broken the chapter down into six parts today so we're going to take a look at each of those six parts individually but as we're going through I want to kind of weave this theme through of two responses and I, I think you'll see that as we walk through this chapter. So first, what I want to do then is look at the Palm Sunday passage, the traditional passage, Matthew 21, verses 1 through 11. And I'll read that for you now. As they, that would be Jesus and his disciples, approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell him that the Lord needs them and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. And just a quick note there, you don't have to try to picture Jesus straddling two donkeys at the same time. The them there is the cloaks. Jesus sat on the cloaks on the one donkey, okay? I know he's you know, supernatural and all, but he's yeah, just riding one donkey. Verse 8. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Okay, so the passage starts off with Jesus taking a donkey ride into Jerusalem. And he's done it, he, di- he did it, as I've told you many times here before, to fulfill scripture. You can read that in the footnotes of your Bible, probably. It's from Zechariah chapter 9, where it says, there, your, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey. So Zechariah told us that this this thing would happen, and it's to symbolize peace. Jesus came on a donkey. He didn't come on a war horse, although if we think about the second coming of Jesus Christ, and you look at Revelation 19, you'll see that when he comes again, he is going to come on a war horse, and it means we better be ready for him when he comes that time. But this time when he came, he came gentle with this message of salvation, this message that God wants to have peace with us if we receive the forgiveness that Jesus came to bring. So, yes, he came gentle and riding on a donkey, but also we have to remember at the same point that Zechariah said he's the king. And because he's king, we need to figure out how we're going to respond to him. Okay, so as Jesus rode this donkey into Jerusalem, it says in verse 8 that the people cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. In the Gospel of John we're told that they are palm branches so that's why we call this Palm Sunday. And kids, have you noticed we have some palm branches here and we're going to let you kids take those when this service is over. And when, the, when the people were taking these palm branches they were shouting something to Jesus. They were shouting Hosanna in the highest. They were praising Jesus. And, and what is it that they're saying there? Well, they quoted from Psalm 118 and this... Uh, This is more than just a little side note here, but I want to tell you that if you really want to understand Palm Sunday, you should look at Psalm 118. In fact, some of you may want to go home today and read Psalm 118. It explains to us, both in Jesus' day and I think in our day, the significance of Palm Sunday. So the the people are quoting that. They're saying, Hosanna, which is a Hebrew word, which basically is a prayer that means, please save us. It came to be a, a, a form of worship that was shouted. So that's what they're shouting to Jesus here. Uh, If you were to read the context of Psalm 118, you'd see other things. Like in verse 21, it says, To God, you have become my salvation. Psalm 118 is a psalm of thanks for God's love and, and for his forgiveness for salvation. So when the people were quoting Psalm 118 as Jesus was riding into the city, whether they knew it or not, they were praising Jesus for coming to bring salvation. And again, I I don't know what the crowd understood at this time, but they got it right. They were worshiping Jesus Christ as our Savior, the one who is bringing salvation. And then just one note that I like to add about Psalm 118. It ends with a festal procession up to the horns of the altar. Psalm 118 is this joyous occasion. They're celebrating God for his salvation and forgiveness, but it ends with a sacrifice. And it even says that branches were used as part of that sacrifice. So fast forward now. Do you see some of the picture? There's palm branches being used. And they're celebrating Jesus. And where was he heading? To be sacrificed. That's the significance of Palm Sunday. Is that God indeed was saving us. And he did it through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Okay, so overall what we see happening in these first 11 verses is that Jesus is being praised as the one who came to save us. And, and you might say that this was the height of Jesus' popularity during his time on earth. The, the crowds were shouting to him. They were adoring him. They were probably very much hoping that he was the Messiah. Yet less than a week later, the, the theme was much different of what the crowds were shouting. I, and I'm sure that I will not be the only pastor across the world who says this today. But... Less than one week later, there was a different crowd that shouted something very different. What were they shouting? Crucify him. Uh, When we give the palm branches to kids, one thing I like to say is notice how quickly the palm branches will die out. And it's it's one thing for us to say on Sunday, Hosanna in the highest, but does our praise continue throughout the week? Will our praise last (laughs) longer than these palm branches will last? So that's kind of the theme of two responses. Even though that that crucify him language is not in our passage today, I think it sets the tone for what I want to show you. That was one crowd who shouted Hosanna in the highest. They were praising Jesus. And there was another crowd that shouted crucify him. And like I said, that crucify him language is not in our passage today. But what I want to do now is I want to walk through the rest of chapter 21 and I want to show you this theme of two responses. So we're going to look at now, verses 12 through 17. Jesus entered the temple area and drove out, drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple area, Hosanna to the son of David, They were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying, they asked him. Yes, Jesus replied. Have you never read, from the lips of children and infants, you have ordained praise? And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany, where he spent the night. So we saw that Jesus created quite a stir with that whole triumphal entry thing. Well, how about this for a stir? He goes into the temple and starts flipping out. Literally, Jesus flipped out, flipping over the tables and the benches. And I can imagine that that sort of behavior is frowned upon. You know, we have a, a church building here, and there are things that I would not want anybody to flip over. So you can see that Jesus was causing quite a stir. Now, why did Jesus do this? What was going on here? Well, the reason that there were money changers and people buying doves is because the Old Testament required that certain sacrifices be made, including the sacrifices of doves. So sometimes people would have to come from afar, and, and they wouldn't necessarily carry their doves with them. So the people came up with this idea, well, we can just sell doves right here at the temple, and then people can come in and buy them. But there became a supply and demand problem. You know, there can be a, a, a supply and demand problem on either side of that curve. Well, here is the problem here. There was divine demand. God himself had ordained that there would be sacrifices of doves at the temple. So the people who were supplying those doves took advantage of it. And and they probably jacked up the prices quite a bit. And what happened was that the whole scene at the temple was changed. And it became more about commerce than it did about honoring God rightly with sacrifices so that's what Jesus was upset about he said my house is supposed to be a, a house of prayer but you're making it a den of robbers Jesus wanted the people, the people to be able to meet with God I read one theologian who had an application on this point and he said maybe one of the applications here is that in our houses of worship we should have more prayer meetings than business meetings I, I thought that was pretty good that yes of course we have to take care of business and things like that but really, what we should be about here is meeting with God and worshiping Him in the way that He has told us that He wants that to happen. So, Jesus took matters into His own hands, overturning tables and benches. And as He did that, you see in verse 14, the blind and the lame came to Him, and He healed them. But then we get to see this other response that I've been foreshadowing. In verse 15, the chief priests and the teachers of the law chimed in. They saw what Jesus did. They heard the children shouting, Hosanna. And what was their response? They were indignant. Do you know what the word indignant means? It, it, somebody who is indignant is somebody who looks at a situation, with a scowl on their face and says, This should not be. Can you see that in their faces as they, they say to Jesus, Do you hear what these children are saying? Jesus, they're asking, Stop them. The children, on the other hand, they had the right response. They were praising Jesus. And Jesus quoted Psalm 8 to remind the religious leaders that the children had actually chosen the right path here. In Psalm 8, the Lord is said to be majestic, and even the children recognize it. And the children start shouting out in praise of God. And do you know why they do it in Psalm 8? It says in Psalm 8, they do it because of God's enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. Isn't this great? The praises of the children silence God's enemies. So do you see what's happening in our passage today? The people were indignant at Jesus. The the religious leaders were indignant. And the children raised up with their voices to praise God, to silence God's enemies. Isn't that great? The, The kids were doing God's work when the adults wouldn't do it. So again, you know, I wanted you to see this theme of two responses. Well, here we have it clearly. The, the children were praising God and some people were mad at God and wanted to stop his work. And, and these aren't just surface issues, by the way. Those two responses represent two very different things going on in our hearts. One is a willingness to praise God for who he is and the other, I don't even know what's going on in that heart, but wanting to stop God's plans. So application point here, our response should be to worship Jesus. He has come as our Savior and he is worthy of praise. And let me just talk to you kids real quick. You you kids, if you want to pay attention, you kids can worship God in such a way that God is very pleased with it. In fact, you kids sometimes can worship God even better than the adults do. Did you know that? God loves to hear your worship. So you kids, in in the best way that you know how, worship God, and he is very pleased with that. And sometimes you kids can even teach us adults how to do that. I remember walking in one time to a group of kids who were singing, and I was just blown away at, at how purely they were worshiping God. So you kids can teach us how to worship God, okay? Okay, let's move on to verses 18 to 22. Early in the morning, as he was on his way back to the city, he was hungry. Seeing a fig tree by the road, he went up to it, but found nothing on it except leaves. Then he said to it, May you never bear fruit again. Immediately the tree withered. When the disciples saw this, they were amazed. How did the fig tree wither so quickly, they asked. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. If you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what was done to the fig tree, but also you can say to this mountain, Go, throw yourself into the sea, and it will be done." if you believe you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer okay, there's a lot going on in these verses there's a lot of symbolism uh, There's teaching on prayer and I don't have time to dive into all of that today I, wanna, I really want to make one point about this passage and my point is that, the, is that Jesus came up to this tree and wanted fruit from it okay? and when he, didn't, we, when he saw that this tree didn't produce fruit he cursed the tree and it withered immediately. Now we might think that that's harsh. What, what would the pet people say? Have you ever heard of PETA? You know, people for the ethical treatment of animals. What about people for the ethical treatment of trees? Isn't, this, isn't it wrong for Jesus to come to this tree? Maybe it wasn't even the season for fruit to be on this tree. How, how dare he be so harsh with this tree? Does he have any right to do that? Well, let me ask the question, is it unfair for Jesus to demand fruit like that? My answer? No. And you know why? Because He's the Creator. Now, you might be saying to yourself, wait a second, I thought God was the Creator. Well, you're right, God is the Creator, but we learn specifically in the New Testament that the world was created by Jesus and for Jesus. Now, I'm not trying to exclude either God the Father or God the Holy Spirit from creation. In fact, I think that all three members of the Trinity were working in creation. But what I want to show you is that Jesus Christ is included in the act of creating the world. In Colossians 1.16, it says, All things were created by Him and for Him. All things were created by Him and for Him. All things. That includes us, right?
1: And it includes
0: that fig tree. So look at the fig tree again. Does the creator of the fig tree have the right to ask for fruit from that fig tree? Yes. Now remember that point, okay? I'm going to ask you to remember that point. It's going to come up later in the sermon as we look at the later part of that passage. So remember the fig tree and Jesus asking for fruit. Okay? But let's move on now. Verses 23 through 27. Jesus entered the temple courts, and while he was teaching, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you this authority? Jesus replied, I will also ask you one question. If you answer me, I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, where did it come from? Was it from heaven or from men? They discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he will ask then why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men... We are afraid of the people, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We don't know. Then he said, Neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. Okay, so amazingly here, Jesus goes back to the temple courts. He just flips things over there, and now he's back at the temple courts. And, and if you wondered whether Jesus had the authority to curse that fig tree, or if you wondered if Jesus had authority to flip over things in the temple... You're not alone. The people here were starting to ask this question, hey Jesus, we see you doing a lot of stuff, do you have the right to do that stuff? And that's a good question. In fact, I think it's, it's a great question. I don't think that they necessarily asked it with the right heart attitude here, but it is a good question and one that we should figure out. Who gave Jesus his authority to do the things that he did? So it's a good question, but instead of giving a direct answer, Jesus answered them with another question about the authority of John the Baptist. Did his authority come from heaven, from God, or did it come from man? Now the chief priests and elders wouldn't answer the question. It's not that they didn't have an answer, it's that they wouldn't answer. You see, they looked at both of the possible answers to that question. And they didn't like the implications of either answer. If he came from God, then we have to listen to him. And if he came from man, well, then the people are going to get mad at us because they all thought that he was from God. So they just said, we don't know. They weren't going to answer the question. And Jesus said, well, I'm not going to answer your question either then. But it's not like there isn't a right answer to Jesus' question. We know the answer, right? We know that Jesus came from heaven, that his authority comes from God himself. But that has massive implications for us. Massive implications. If Jesus Christ came from God, then we have to listen to him. Then we have to submit our lives to him and follow him. That's what Jesus' authority means. And the application question that we should be asking then, should we believe Jesus or not? Did he really come from God? And I understand that those can be difficult questions and that people who are seekers may have a hard time coming up with answers to those questions. But at the same point, There is an answer to that question. And if Jesus came from God, it means that we need to submit to him. So these are key questions. And and let me just tell you this about answering these questions. It takes humility to get the answer right. It takes humility for us to recognize that we may not be the most important person that has ever walked the face of this earth. That, That Jesus Christ is and that we are to give our lives to him, to follow him. It takes humility for us to recognize that we are not to direct our own life, but that God is. Okay, if Jesus came from God, it means that we should follow him. How should we follow him? Well, that's what the next two parables teach us. So we're going to move on to the fifth of the six passages here. It's the parable of the two sons in verses 28 to 32. Jesus says, What do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, Son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. By the way, do any of your kids ever say that to you? Uh, I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. Any of your kids ever do that one? Okay. Which of the two did what his father wanted? The first they answered... Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth. The tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to you to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. Now, this passage sometimes feels weird to me because neither of the children got it right. They they both lied or, or at least disobeyed. So the point isn't to say that one of the sons got it perfect. The point is to say that at least one of the sons did what his father asked him to do. Only one son did that. The other son tried to make it look like he was following his father, but his actions proved him to be a liar. So again, do you see this theme of two responses here? There was one son who did what his father asked, and there was one son who didn't do what his father asked. So from this passage, what should our response be? Well, our response should be to do what God has told us to do. It's interesting to me that in this passage, the father said the same thing to both children. He said, go and work today in the vineyard. Does God say something like that to us? Does he ask us to go and work for him in his vineyard So spiritually speaking, what should we be doing? How should we be responding? How should we be working in his vineyard like he has asked us to? Well, thank you for asking and hey, look at what we have next. Jesus tells us what it means to work in his vineyard. So we're going to read this last section now, the parable of the tenants, which by the way, this is a go-to passage for me. I think the issue of lordship the idea of do we know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, and do we live our life accordingly? I I think those questions are so important that every one of us should be able to go to the Bible and explain what we mean when we say that we should follow Jesus Christ as Lord. This is one of the passages that I go to. So that's just a free tip for you. This can become a go-to passage of yours if you'd like. Uh, But I, I love to use this passage to explain the concept of Lordship. Who's in control of our lives? How should we follow God? So let me read it for you. Starting in verse 33, Jesus says, Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and went away on a journey. When the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. Okay, let me just stop right there and ask, does this landowner have the right to to ask the tenants for some fruit? Okay. Let's ask that question and let, then let's move on. But, but think about that question. Okay? Verse 35. The tenants, so those are the ones he had hired out the vineyard to these tenants, the tenants seized his servants, they beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. Then he sent other servants to them, more than the first time, and the tenants treated them the same way. Last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said, but when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, This is the heir. Come on, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? He will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied, and he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of, crop, of the crop at harvest time. Jesus said to them have you never read in the scriptures the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone or cornerstone possibly the Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes therefore I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces but he on whom it falls will be crushed when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables they knew he was talking about them They looked for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. Earlier I asked the question, does this landowner have the right, the authority to ask for fruit? And, And let me just answer by saying, well, he knew that the land was able to produce fruit, and he's the boss. So yes, he has every right to expect that there would be fruit and to expect that they would give him his share of the fruit. Fruit is a key word in this passage. The landowner expected it. And as such, he sent servants to collect it, but the tenants wouldn't give it to him. They beat the servants and even killed some of them. And the landowner had one more to send, a son. And in case you've completely missed the analogy so far, the son is Jesus Christ. God sent his son last of all. And it's it's amazing to think about this parable and to think, well, yeah, how did they treat God's prophets? How did they treat God's son when he came? So how did the tenants treat the son? Well, they killed him, thinking they could receive the vineyard as their own and run it their own way without the troubles of having a boss or a landowner. But their, tra- their, their plan backfired on them, tragically. The landowner came back in verse 40. But I love, This is one of the things I love about this parable. At first, he's just kind of called the owner of the vineyard, or I think it's the man of the vineyard in verse 33. But then in verse 40, he is called the Lord of the vineyard. What's the Lord of the vineyard going to do when he sees what has happened at his vineyard? The Lord is the one who's in control. And when this Lord came, it says he brought those wretches to a wretched end there was wrath why? because the people weren't living according to what the Lord had told them that they should do so it says he was going to kill those people and give the vineyard to others who would give him his share of the fruit and then Jesus explains the parable in verse 42 he says the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone the Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes do you know where Jesus is quoting from? Psalm 118 again. So again, just a little little plug here. If you want to go home and read Psalm 118, I think you'll, you'll be enlightened on what Palm Sunday is really all about. There is a stone upon which we must build our lives, Jesus Christ. But there are two possible responses to him. One is we can build our life on him and follow him and live according to his ways. The other is that we can go our own way and pretend that we can live our lives the way that we want to. It's reminiscent of the gospel message. God sent His Son. He he sent Him to teach us how to walk with Him. He sent Him to live a perfect life. He sent Him to take our sins upon Himself and to die on the cross. He sent him to die, but to win the victory over death. And through his resurrection, we too may have new life. And the gospel message is that anybody who believes in Jesus Christ gives their life to him as Savior and Lord, that anyone can be forgiven and have eternal life and a relationship with God. That's what God wanted for us. That is who our Lord is. And that's his plan for us as we work in his vineyard. Because God sent his son, we need to respond to him. And here's something cool about the gospel message. God actually wants us to share in the inheritance with his son. In this parable, the people were conniving and scheming and ended up murdering because they thought they could steal the inheritance. But do you know what? God wants to give us an inheritance. Do you know what kind of inheritance the Bible says it is? We are going to be co-inheritors with Jesus Christ himself. So if you want in on the inheritance of the Son, you need to receive the Son as Savior and Lord, and God will give you that inheritance. But God wants us to follow His ways. See, a lot of people have rejected Jesus, not bearing fruit. But God is always looking, and I I think we see that in this parable here, He's always looking for people who will bear fruit. So what does that fruit represent? Well, I think there's a lot of things that that fruit in this parable can represent. I think it can represent receiving Jesus as Savior and Lord. It represents continuing to live with Him, uh, abiding in Him. I think it can represent the fruit of the Spirit like we see in Galatians 5, love, joy, peace, and on and on. It can represent the fruit of making disciples. All these sorts of things are things that God wants us to be doing in His vineyard as we work for Him. And unless we bear fruit, like Jesus said in a different metaphor in John 15, so I know I'm kind of switching metaphors on you here, but in John 15 Jesus said that we're like branches and if we don't bear fruit, that we are in danger of being cut off and burned. God wants us to bear fruit for him, but it has everything to do with us accepting his authority, following his ways and serving him as Lord. That's is the right response. The life of worshipping Him and living for Him. The other response is to go our own way, choosing our own path. And let me just talk about that for a moment here. What we see around us in this world is two groups of people. And I realize it's maybe not so cut and clear as we try to figure out which one are they, which one are they. But really when it boils down to it, there are two groups of people. There are people who have chosen their own path and there are people who have chosen God's path. So why is it? Why do some people choose their own path? Lots of reasons, I suppose. Uh, it, it looks good. Um, we think that we know what's best. We, we think that we can create a good life for ourselves, the things that we will enjoy if we follow our own ways. We, we maybe think that we'll have less burden from God. I think that some people see God as a killjoy and he just doesn't want me to have any fun, so I'm going to go my own way and pick my own path. That's one path that people can pick. The other path is where we submit to the Lordship of God, where we recognize that He loves us and has good plans for us. Now, why would anybody pick that path? Because that's what we were created for. Remember Colossians 1.16 again? All things were created by Him and for Him. If we choose our own path, we've chosen to go our own way, and we've rejected God. But what we should be doing is humbly receiving what God has for us. That means receiving Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, and then living our whole lives for him. So there it is. It's set before us. We have two choices. Either we follow Jesus, or we reject him. Remember, the Creator expects fruit from us. Now remember the fig tree? I told you to remember the fig tree. I hope you remember the fig tree. The Creator expected it to have fruit for Him, and when it didn't, what did He do? He cursed it, and it withered. The Lord of the vineyard still expects fruit from us. So here's my conclusion then. We need to respond to Jesus. And like I said, we have two choices. Either reject or reject or receive. So the first thing I want to say, if there's any of you out there who have not yet received Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, do it now. He is Lord. And I realize in this passage uh, the Lord represents God the Father. But throughout the rest of the New Testament, Jesus Christ is also called Lord. So if we're looking at what it means to follow the Lordship of God, I think this passage teaches us what it means to know a Lord, and Jesus Christ is Lord. So if you have not yet received Jesus Christ as Lord, you can just talk to God right now, thank Him for sending Jesus, and ask for forgiveness of your sins, and tell Him that you want Jesus to be the Lord of your life. You can give your life to Him right now and receive forgiveness and eternal life. That's the first step. And from there, what are we supposed to do? We are to continue to live in Him. We end now every service with Colossians 2, 6, and 7. It says, So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, what are we supposed to do next? Continue to live in Him. Good job, guys. You guys are getting that. It really helps to have it up on the screen, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, we are to continue to live in Him as Lord. He's the Lord of our lives. We are to follow Him. That means that we're to worship Him. It means that we're to continue to meet with Him through things like reading your Bible. And I, I urge you to read your Bible daily. We're to meet with him in prayer, submitting to him, just talking to him, listening to him. We're to be actively involved in the fellowship of believers. That's why we do church. That's why we do things like Bible studies. Because we're, we're better. We do a better job of worshiping God when we encourage each other to do it together. We're to worship God. And that means what we do with our mouths, but also what we do with our lives. We, we can obviously worship him through what we, we say and what we sing, but we can also worship God with our actions, with our daily lives. Another piece of fruit that we can give to God is the fruit of repentance. If you realize that you've kind of strayed onto the wrong path, just talk to God and say, God, I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Please strengthen me to live the way you want me to. John the Baptist said in 3.8, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. The Lord of the vineyard is expecting fruit from us. And um, one thing I want you to remember about that vineyard analogy, it's God who produces the fruit. Okay? We have a role in there, we're dependent, but really, if we're talking about the fruit in our lives, Don't assume that it comes from you. God is the one who produces the fruit. And back to John 15, that fruit is produced in us as we remain connected to Jesus. God will make you a fruitful Christian if you remain connected to Jesus and if you continually submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. So receive Jesus if you haven't and keep following him. See, the Easter season is meant to be a season where we remember who Jesus is, what he did for us, and how we can keep following him. And what I hope you've seen today is that there's only two choices. Either we reject him or we receive him. And if we receive him, we are to continue to live in him. And there's a strong link between the authority of Jesus Christ and the fact that he is Lord. So how should we respond? Submit to him. Live for him and praise him. Say Hosanna in the highest. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for all of this, for your plan to rescue us. That even though we we were like those wicked tenants, rejecting you and going our own way, that you loved us and you sent your son. And I thank you for those of us who know him, that you got your message across to us and that we've come to faith in Jesus Christ. I pray that we would continue to live in him and worship you and follow you and give you the glory that you deserve. If there are any in here who don't yet know you, Lord, we pray that they would come to know you even right now So, in the quietness of their own hearts. God, we love you. We thank you. Jesus, thank you for coming. You are our Savior, our Lord. We want to worship you. Amen.